Hi, welcome back to the horrors. Hello, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Or November 1st. Yeah. Yeah. But you know. We're close enough. The feeling lingers. We're still here. <laughs> we are still here. We're still serving up spooky shit. Correct. November is jam-packed, but we felt the need to stick to tradition when it came to our Halloween coverage. And here we are with Halloween 2007. We've done it once. We've done it twice. This is Thrice. I love Thrice. It's a good band. This is Rob Zombie's reimagining of the 1978 original. And boy, is it a Rob Zombie movie. (laughs) And boy, is it 2007. (laughs) It's pretty nuts. You didn't like this. Uh, no. (laughs) But I mean, there are areas that I liked as far as I got through this movie, but there were parts about this movie that I was like, really? (laughs) But that's okay. It was a wild ride either way. and it, It did keep my attention, I have to say. Yeah, it doesn't need to be two hours, but... Yeah, that's also true. But we got a lot of ladies, so I'm going to get into them. We start off with Deborah Myers, who is Michael Myers' mother, played by Sherry Moon Zombie. And we know her from The Lords of Salem. She played Heidi. She's also in Halloween 2, 2009, which is Rob Zombie's sequel to his reimagining. She's also in other films that her husband has made... (laughs) House of a Thousand Corpses, The Devil's Rejects, 31, Three from Hell, The Monsters 2022 remake. We are big fans of Sherry Moon Zombie. I love that they're such a team. Hell yeah. They're so cute. (laughs) I think they've been together like 30 years at this point. Wow, that's awesome. So pure. We have Judith Myers, Michael Myers' older sister, played by Hannah Hall. She is primarily known for being (gasps) young Jenny in Forrest Gump. Oh my gosh. But she also has various other TV and movie roles. We have Laurie Strode, this time played by Scout Taylor Compton. She is in Halloween 2, 2009, again, Rob Zombie's sequel, a movie called Wicked Little Things. 13 Going on 30 shows Charmed in Nashville and lots of other TV and film credits. So Scout endured a long audition process, but as director Rob Zombie explains, Scout was my first choice. There was something about her. She just had a genuine quality. She didn't seem actory. Really? I guess. So I guess he really liked the realisticness that she brought to the role. And that's something that we talked about prior to recording. Like, she does feel like an actual teenager. Yeah, she does. Especially one in 2007. But if not Scout, Emma Stone (gasps) or Danielle Panabaker were also considered for the role. Wow. We have Annie, who is played by Danielle Harris. And we know her from Urban Legend. She was Tosh, the goth roommate. Oh my gosh. She's also in Halloween 2, 2009. But what's so cool about Danielle Harris is she served as the new protagonist in the Halloween franchise after the departure of Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween 2. So beginning in Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers, and going into Halloween 5, the revenge of Michael Myers, she was like the main final girl. Wow. But as a child. She's also briefly in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. She's in the Hatchet franchise, a movie called Stakeland, and a shit ton of other horror titles. And let us not forget the voice of Debbie in The Wild Thornberries. Shut the fuck up. We talked about this last time in Urban Legend and you said the same thing. I love that. I love, thank you for reminding me. Yes, of course. So I just alluded to this, but her involvement in this is super cool. Being in that in Halloween's 4 and 5, she plays Jamie Lloyd, who is the new protagonist of the Halloween franchise after Jamie Lee Curtis declined to continue before her return in Halloween H2O. And I had explained the weird timelines that exist in the Halloween franchise, I think in Halloween 2018. But essentially, after Halloween 2, Jamie Lee Curtis was like, bye, no thank you. Halloween 3 has nothing to do with Michael Myers. That's when they tried to turn it into an anthology. It failed. And then in Halloween 4, 5, and 6, they follow Danielle Harris as Jamie Lloyd, who is Laurie Strode's daughter, 
but they just kill Laurie Strode off in like a car accident somewhere between two and four. Hmm. But Michael goes after Jamie Lloyd in four, five, and six as a way to kill off the rest of his family tree now that Laurie Strode isn't on his radar. But then when Halloween H2O comes out in 1998, they ignore four, five, and six and just go straight from Halloween 2, the last time we saw Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode, to Halloween H2O 20 years later with Laurie Strode as an adult Mm. and is found by Michael again. So again, some convoluted timelines here, but Danielle Harris playing a different role in a Halloween movie when she played such a pivotal role in the franchise as a child is super cool. Danielle Harris was 29 years old when she was cast as the teenage Annie- (sighs) This is also cool because Nancy Loomis was also 29 when she played the original Annie in 1978. Cool. I am also 29, but I don't... Maybe (laughs) I could pass for a 16-year-old. I don't know. I mean, I'm tiny, but like... We also have Linda, who is played by Christina Klebe. She's in films called I Am Fear, Don't Kill It, Two Witches, Proxy, and other non-horror-specific titles. And then we have Cynthia Strode, who plays Laurie Strode's mother. And she is played by Dee Wallace... We know her as Lynn from The Hills Have Eyes. Oh my god, that's Dee Wallace. That's Dee Wallace. Oh my gosh. She's also in The Stepford Wives. She's in E.T., The Howling, Cujo, Critters, Lords of Salem. She plays one of the main three witches. Mm -hmm. Three from Hell, The Monsters remake, Jeepers Creepers Reborn. She is in hella TV and movie roles. She's a fucking queen. And she works with Rob Zombie a lot. We just talked about that in Sinister about it's so cool when like certain actors love working together. Rob Zombie and Dee Wallace are like that. I'm crossing my fingers pretty tightly. (laughs) (laughs) So going into some pre-plot trivia, this is directed by Rob Zombie. He's known for Halloween 2, 2009, Lords of Salem, House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects, Three from Hell, 31, Monsters Remake, also prominently a heavy metal musician. (laughs) So he took advice from the original director, John Carpenter, to make the film his own, and Zombie chose to develop the film as both an origin story and a remake, allowing for more original content than simply refilming the same scenes. And I just thought this tidbit was so fucking funny and interesting if we lived in a world where this happened. So after the release of Halloween Resurrection, which is the eighth installment, there were various ideas on how to proceed with a ninth installment. After the release of Freddy vs. Jason in 2003, Dimension Films attempted to produce a crossover with the Hellraiser franchise (gasps) featuring Pinhead and the Cenobites. One of the pitches involved a young Michael Myers opening the Lament configuration, being possessed by Semaine fleeing from hell, providing the source of his murderousness and invincibility. And the remainder of the film involved the Cenobites pursuing him. According to Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, Clive Barker agreed to write a script while John Carpenter was being considered to direct. Oh my gosh. Bradley said that Barker wasn't interested in a mono a mono confrontation. He was interested in finding the places where Hellraiser and Halloween landscapes might have crossed over and that he envisioned Michael Myers as a sadomasochistic sexual pervert and serial killer, which would be enough to pique Pinhead's interest. The project was ultimately canceled after 52% of respondents to an online poll disapproved of the project. Whoa. And isn't that so funny? Because didn't we have them in Villains March Madness like up against each other at one point? I think we did. They were definitely like in the same game. I don't know if they went head to head, but I think part of the reasoning that we talked about was that like Michael Myers isn't a sexual being. So Pinhead wouldn't be interested. So it's so interesting that a crossover between Hellraiser and Halloween almost (laughs) happened. And I mean, Freddy versus Jason is a deliciously terrible movie. So I like almost wish that it did happen in that early 2000s space. But I guess it's good that it didn't at the same time. But I just found that so funny. 
And I also found this interesting because we just finished September. The movie was not released in the United States on Halloween weekend, as was the original, for fear of going head-to-head with Saw 4. It was instead released two months earlier on the last weekend of August in 2007. So, like, they literally would not release Halloween on Halloween because they're like, Saw's too big. Wow. I know. I'm like, go fucking Saw. But are you ready to get into it? I... I dare say. All right. How do we open? Okay. So we open in Haddonfield, Illinois. It's October 31st in the morning. And we see a young boy playing with his hamster. The hamster's name is Elvis. And the young boy is wearing a clown mask. Downstairs, Deborah Myers and her boyfriend, Ronnie, are arguing over finances. There's a baby sitting at the kitchen table who starts crying. You know, this is just setting the scene of regular morning chaos. Deborah sends her daughter Judith upstairs to get Michael downstairs to get ready for school. When Judith goes upstairs to get Michael, Michael is in the bathroom watching his bloody hands, and it looks like maybe he has killed Elvis. I said rip Elvis, who died appropriately in a bathroom. Wait, is Elvis a rat or a hamster? I think it's a rat. Yeah, it is a rat because Ronnie makes fun of him for having a pet rat. Okay, so it's a rat. Also, Ronnie's a perv. Yeah, Ronnie is so bad. He's checking out Judith, commenting on her little dumper. She's a teenager. In front of her mother. Yeah, and saying some horrifically misogynistic shit to Deborah, which we don't need to repeat, but like, this is some Rob Zombie dialogue. Yeah. (laughs) Very aggressive, very horrific. Michael and Judith come downstairs where Ronnie says some more offensive shit and makes Michael take off his clown mask. He doesn't do it until he threatens him with physical violence while Deborah is very unsuccessfully trying to keep the peace. And again, like Deborah's probably allowing too much the fact that Ronnie's in front of her being like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you if you don't take this mask off. Like very, very crazy. Then Michael goes to school and he's hiding in the bathroom stall when fucking Junie Cortez rolls in. Yeah. Fucking Daryl Sabra can't, can't (laughs) like be away. Fucking Lars from Green Inferno (laughs) is back with fellow bitch boy saying some slut shamey things about Judith and Deborah as Michael exits the bathroom stall and just tries to get past them. And he ends up showing Michael a print ad of Deborah as a dancer, essentially showing Michael that his mom is a sex worker, making fun of him for it. Again, saying some very sexually charged language. But this is enough to piss Michael off. A fight ensues and the principal who looks to be about a thousand years old breaks it up. Yeah. His facial prosthetics look horrible. (laughs) Like you could tell they tried to make this man look older, like very much in The Exorcist. Mm. But like this man looks fucking terrible. But it also, I think, makes him look pretty intimidating too. So he has a meeting in his office. Deborah is called into this meeting so they could talk about her son. And Dr. Loomis is brought into this meeting as well, who is a child psychologist. And again, Michael is not in this meeting. He is sitting outside of the office while Deborah, the principal, and Dr. Loomis talk about Michael. And they essentially show Deborah that while inspecting Michael's backpack, they found a dead cat inside of his backpack and a series of photos of other dead animals. And Deborah really does not believe at first that her son could be responsible for this. She tries to make excuses like maybe Michael picked up the dead cat or his heart is just so big he thought he could save it. She's really slow to kind of acknowledge what we know to be true, of course, because of the history of the franchise. But she is informed nevertheless that there might be something seriously psychological going on with Michael that needs attention. And Michael's 10 years old. Oh yeah, young. He's young. Or maybe like middle school age, but he's at least like 10 to 12. So he is a young, creepy ass looking <laughs> and is too young to be like playing with dead things. So meanwhile, Michael escapes from the office, which isn't hard because nobody is watching. <laughs> not a secretary to be found, not another administrator or teacher to be found. And it looks like he is bent on tracking down his bully. 
Junie Cortez. (laughs) (laughs) He finds him in the woods and ambushes him from behind with a tree branch and hits him a couple times pretty hard. And it's a thick branch. Yeah, it's not like a stick. This is a log. Which I also think is showing Michael's strength, even at a young age. Everything is a... Yeah, so he is wielding this tree branch with power. Also, he is back wearing his clown mask. So we were sensing a theme here. He stops beating up his bully in time to see the bully cry and beg for mercy. But then Michael delivers the final round of fatal blows and leaves his bully dead in the woods. Said Junie's gonna need a little more than finger bandages for this one. Yeah. So Michael returns home and Ronnie mocks him because... (laughs) Killing animals is some F-slur ass shit, which, sure. (laughs) Yeah, like, Ronnie is just saying stuff. Yeah, he's just there to spew garbage. You know what we need? We need Hilary Duff. Yes. Uh, I think she's the only one who could really get through to Ronnie. I think so, too. (sighs) I think so, too. (laughs) So, Deborah is really trying to be gentle with Michael, saying, like, listen, everything's gonna be better tomorrow. You know, have fun trick-or-treating tonight and pretty much tells Judith, hey, can you take your brother around? I gotta go to work. But very soon after Deborah leaves, Judith's rocker boyfriend arrives (laughs) and they tell Michael just to go by himself. So then we get Sherry Moon Zombie doing a strip tease to Love Hurts while Michael sadly eats candy on his stoop. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, the the juxtaposition of this just makes me giggle. I don't know why. Stoop kids afraid to leave the stoop? stoop? Yep. Michael dons his clown mask and returns back inside while Judith and her boyfriend fuck. The boyfriend thinks the cure to Judith's daddy issues is a mask because he goes on to say, like, what if your dad hears this? Like, that's not my dad. My dad's in heaven. And then he's like, okay, do you want me to fuck you with this mask on? Like, it's just like, what is going on? I don't know. Again, he's another guy that's just saying stuff in this movie. Yeah. Come on, babe. I want to do it with the mask on. But is this mask, because I know Michael Myers' mask was taken from whatever that Star Trek character's mask was. William Shatner, yeah. So did he put that mask on because it was part of his Halloween costume or something? Are we to assume? Where are we to assume that he got that mask from? This is supposed to be the origin story of the mask because we don't like learn about it in the first one. But in my mind, because he didn't get it because it was a michael myers mask right so i was like why do you have this mask is it supposed to be this star trek character's mask that you had on hand for your halloween costume and then it became michael myers mask that's kind of what i was wondering yeah i don't know whether this was just like rocker boyfriend's personal project that michael (laughs) took credit for if this was arts and crafts time or if this is a commercially available mask at this point in a different universe but it's there Michael notices Ronnie snoring in his recliner, and then he eats candy sadly at the kitchen table, is like flicking candy corn all over the damn place. And he goes very quickly from doing that to grabbing some duct tape and a kitchen knife, bounding a drunk Ronnie to the chair and slitting his throat. I'm like, okay. It happens really fast. Very fast. The pace is very fast. So boyfriend is in the kitchen (laughs) making a sandwich. (laughs) I just laughed. I'm like, oh, to have the confidence of a teenage boy to just assemble a cold cut sandwich (laughs) after like fucking someone's daughter upstairs like what like i just like love that he's like raw dogging these cold cuts it's like this is not your house like have you ever gone into somebody's house like i'm just gonna go right to the deli drawer and like, assemble myself a shaggy and scooby level sub and just take that shit down i'm like we all need a post-coital snack sometimes like i'm not taking it away from him but i was just laughing at his ease in which he's doing this But as he heads back upstairs with his gorgeous sandwich, he unfortunately never gets to eat it. Oh, he doesn't even make it upstairs. Yeah, he makes it up. I think that's like one of those stairs that has like a set and then a turn and then a set. No, Michael just fucking beats the shit out of him while he's sitting down. Oh, then who does he see on the steps? I thought he was walking up the steps or something. No, that's in the first one. 
The original. This one, he's literally just sitting at the kitchen table and eating, and then he just gets fucking whacked with a baseball bat from behind while he's just trying to enjoy his salad. And then he gets whacked again and again and again. And again and again and again and again. Because in the original, the boyfriend makes it out, remember? Yeah. He's a minute man, and then he's like up, down, and he's out, and then Judith just ends up dying. But in this one, the boyfriend gets it too. So he's dead. I guess this is when Michael heads upstairs. I think this is where we get the tracking POV shot of like him walking through the house, grabbing the kitchen knife, going upstairs. And Judith doesn't notice because she's listening to headphones. Yes. So this is when Michael grabs the mask from the boyfriend's backpack and puts it on. And also Judith is naked. She's wearing like a t-shirt and nothing else. Yeah. Michael taps her. He caresses her. He caresses her. He's checking his sister out. Judith turns around and is like, what the fuck? You know, Michael's wearing a mask. He had just caressed her and she confronts him about how fucking weird that is, but he ends up stabbing her. Well, she does get slap happy with him. She like slaps him across the face twice. That's a big sibling thing to do. It is a big sibling thing to do. (laughs) For better or for worse. Except not me. I'm the big sibling. I'm a small big sibling. (laughs) She tries to get away but is taken down with more stabs by Michael. And it just seems very mean-spirited because he wants to draw this one out in comparison to the other two where they were like very quick and easy. And again, like that's the whole argument that people make in the horror genre. It's like, well, more men die than women most of the time. But again, it's the how. Mm -hmm. Like Ronnie got his throat slit and the boyfriend got pummeled. But like the cat and mouse that he's doing with Judith Mm -hmm. and like how drawn out it is. And we see her crying and begging. But then we hear the baby crying. So he goes into the baby's room, stares over the crib, and says, Happy Halloween, boo. Then mom arrives home to Michael waiting outside for her, and then basically cue police montage and reporter sequence reporting on the three deaths that occurred inside the house. So again, three deaths that we saw, it seems like the baby was spared. Then we are at Smith's Grove, 11 months later. There's news coverage playing over the scenes telling us that Michael was found guilty of first screen murder and Dr. Loomis was appointed to be treating him while he's incarcerated. We start getting glimpses of their sessions together. And this is the first time we're ever seeing Michael speak. Technically, like he's a kid here, but canonically, Michael does not talk. So the fact that we're getting Michael talking as a kid marks the first time that we've ever heard Michael communicate via words with other people, which is interesting. But through these sessions, Michael doesn't seem to have memory of the events. He even goes as far as to ask Deborah if everyone at home is okay and Mm -hmm. asking when he can go home. And this is where he befriends a custodian who goes out of his way to comfort him and give him encouragement telling him to look beyond the walls he's trapped in. Things can get better. This is Danny Trejo. I would like Danny Trejo to be my guardian angel. I I want Pop-Pop Danny Trejo (laughs) taking care of me behind bars. Absolutely. So Michael is taking to mask making while behind bars, and he makes an all-black mask because he doesn't want anyone to see him. I'm so sorry. I just remember that Danny Trejo is also in Spy Kids. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was actually a piece of IMDb trivia that I did not include, is that Danny Trejo and Daryl Sabra worked together before, but they are never in the same scene together in Halloween 2007. Ah, Well, speaking of casts that like to work together. Oh, my God. He tells Deborah, I like my mask because it hides my face. It hides my ugliness. So obviously this is like really fucking sad because he sees himself as ugly. Like no one wants to hear a kid talk about themselves that way. And it's trying to give Michael this backstory where we're meant to sympathize with him, which I'll talk about after we're done. But that's a big point of contention between people who don't like the 2007, 2009 remakes is like, We didn't need Michael to have a backstory. Like, we're not supposed to feel bad for him. He's just supposed to be this killing machine. And now that you're sympathizing him, it makes it less good, I guess. But I guess that's up to opinion. 
Throughout the sessions, Michael is growing increasingly more agitated, begging to go home, screaming. Loomis is trying to comfort him. And we see a lot of tenderness between the two. Like Loomis pulls him into a hug. We see Deborah hugging him. Like this is not what we're used to <laughs> when seeing right. big boy Michael. No. Also, we can see that time is elapsing. And another scene, it looks like Christmas time has arrived. When Deborah is visiting, Michael is having a particularly bad session this day. I think this is when Loomis pulls him in for a hug, right? In those moments of tenderness. And then we see even more time has elapsed. It looks like it is spring or summer now. It's green outside. Michael has taken to always wearing a mask now. He's designing his own at this point with it looks like tape and markers. And while he is at lunch, Deborah is visiting and gives Michael an old picture of him holding baby Boo. But Michael doesn't react. I mean, he's wearing a mask. We can't see his facial expression, but he doesn't even seem to emote in any sense of the word when looking at the picture of this baby. Loomis then walks Deborah out of the cafeteria area to talk about something, Michael's treatment, the progress, and a nurse sits down next to Michael, just saying hello, and in no time, Michael grabs a fork from his food, stabs the nurse in the neck, and sends the place into lockdown. Deborah runs in along with Loomis and tries to subdue Michael, but he screams at her and attacks her, which terrifies her and obviously shows her that whatever sense of mother-son tenderness was left in their relationship seems like it has dissipated on his end. Obviously a very sad, troubling scene. It seems like all the progress that Loomis hoped he was making with Michael has severely backtracked. We get another scene, again, trigger warning for suicide content. We are watching Deborah at home, watching old home movies. She is crying, undoubtedly feeling sad and confused about what just happened that day. She's holding a small handgun and then shoots herself after the sound goes off, we can hear Baby Boo cry from the other room. This is so dark. Horrific. Horrific, dark, astounding. Such a turn from this killing machine, Michael, to such a heavy background. I can see being a little bit jarring for fans. So it jumped to 15 years later. Michael is still incarcerated at Smith's Grove. And Ishmael, who is Danny Trejo, the man who has been looking out for him, the custodian, is aged and showing around a very shitty new employee. <laughs> They open the door to Michael's room, which is decorated with all of the masks that he's made over the years. This new guy is cruising for a bruising because he's touching Michael's things. And Ishmael's like, stop it. Don't touch his shit. I've been taking care of this kid for almost 20 years. Like, treat him with respect. But this new guy just fucking sucks. We see another session with Dr. Loomis and a very large adult Michael. Fun fact, the man who plays Michael is a professional wrestler and is 6'8". Wow! Yes. So this man is very large and in charge. Dr. Loomis essentially tells Michael, I don't know where to go from here. You haven't said a word in 15 years. I have to move on. I won't be treating you anymore. And Michael doesn't react. And later we see Dr. Loomis giving a college lecture on Michael saying that Michael has eyes of blackness, the absence of light, essentially just saying this kid is evil. This is the embodiment of evil. So later, a bunch of guards are getting ready to transfer somebody from this hospital to another one. And we learn that it's Michael. They are moving him somewhere else. They go to collect him. It looks like maybe there's about four or five of them. They're moving him through the hallway as he is chained at the wrists and ankles, still wearing a mask. And before they can transfer him from one hall to the next, he literally snaps out of his chain like they are fucking snap-it bracelets from Mm -hmm. 1998. (laughs) And with his super strength, beats the shit out of all the guards and kills them. Like, there are points he's using, like, one of the guards' bodies as a weapon. Like, so he, I mean, this is quite the fight sequence. He kills everybody. 
Later, we see Ishmael arrive on scene for his shift, but... No one works in this hospital. No one works in this hospital. (laughs) But we can excuse it a little bit here because he does end up coming across one of the dead bodies. So it seems like Michael not only has killed his guards, but has made his way to other areas of the hospital as well. And Ishmael runs in to Michael. He tries to help him or at least plead with him. Michael, it's me. I've known you. (sighs) Oh, I know. But Michael ends up grabbing him by the face, giving him some good wax, and then drowns him in a sink. Well, tries to drown him. Tries to drown him in a sink. But this POV shot is especially gruesome because, you know, Ishmael's face is bleeding. So with each dunk, the water becomes more and more red and dark with color. And then he kills him with a TV to the face. He mockers him. I was thinking it's primetime, bitch. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to primetime, bitch. Oh my God, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> But like, wait, you're right, Stumacher. I didn't even think of the Stumacher part. Yeah, Stumacher's him. But it's so heartbreaking because Ishmael just keeps saying, I was good to you, Mikey. I was good to you, Mikey. And it also does suck too because with Dr. Loomis, Dr. Loomis worked for 15 years with Michael. And maybe I'm a bitch by saying he might have ulterior motives for working with Michael. No, he uses him for fame. Yeah. But like Ishmael, like he had no other reason to be friendly with Michael other than, I don't know, making his job here his career, wanting to be helpful. And I think that this is a point in the movie where it's like we as the audience are supposed to understand that the sympathy we felt for Michael early on we can let that go yes you know he's an adult now he killed a lot of people even though he was shown 15 years of love and attention and I'm not saying it was perfect because it wasn't trauma is hard I don't want to make it sound like I'm diagnosing him but he's an adult now and he's making these decisions and somebody who was such a pure character in the audience's eyes met the same fate as everybody else it's just tough I will say, too, Zombie does a good job of bringing it back around in one of the final confrontations, like showing tenderness to Michael, which I do kind of appreciate, but I could see why people don't like. But I'll Mm. talk about it when it happens. So Dr. Loomis gets a call in the middle of the night telling him that Michael has escaped. We are now being moved to a truck stop with Ken Foray doing the most in the character acting department. Wait, I loved this character. In the brief time we had him, I was like, this man, I felt like this rejuvenated my interest in my livelihood. Mr. Joe Grizzly <laughs> is like the best part of this movie. 100%. Ken Foray is like checking his hair in like the mirror. He goes to take a wicked dump. So he is like sitting in a stall looking at Playboys and Michael has found his way there and him and his dirty, dirty feet (laughs) pull up on Ken Foray in this stall. It's actually so funny because Joe Grizzly is like, listen, man, I got a Taco (laughs) Deluxe in my tummy talking back. Taco Supreme. Taco Deluxe Supreme, whatever, (laughs) talking back to me right now and it's going to be a minute. And like, (laughs) my man just wants to take a shit in peace. He just wants to take his shit in peace, but Michael is not moving his dirty, dirty feet. He's like, all right, then. So he like stands up, takes his knife out. And he's like, I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch, and tries to intimidate him. And I thought that this was a nice callback because this happens in Halloween 2018, where he literally uses Joe Grizzly's arm to break the fucking bathroom stall. That's right. I forgot about the truck scene in the original movie. Well, I'm also thinking about 2018, where it's like the teeth go over the side, the podcasters get killed in the bathroom. Right! That's what I was talking about, but you're right. Is there a scene in the original with the bathroom? I feel like there might be a scene in the original, because how else does... Oh, no, no, no! No, it's not the original, you're right. It's the pickup truck driver. Yes, it's the car crash. Right. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Something like that. Yeah. Either way, I liked that the bathroom scene was called back to in 2018, even though the 2007 is in canon. Great. (laughs) But literally, Michael breaks the bathroom with his body and stabs him to death. And now Michael has his outfit. 
has like the trucker zip up outfit. But I like loved that he just put some comedy in here and gave us a character actor that was just like so funny for even if it was for a few seconds. Mm -hmm. Like then I wrote new character time, including D Wallace. We are back in Haddonfield, and yes, Dee Wallace, she is there with her husband making breakfast, and Lori Strode comes downstairs to eat breakfast with her family, and Lori, she's a lot. She is a lot. She immediately pretends that her breakfast bagels are her breasts. She makes a a little joke about it. I wrote, excuse me, Lori? (laughs) This was so jarring compared to who I envision Lori Strode being. It felt so 2007, though. Like, it felt like very edgelord-y. I also wrote, this dad deserves to die after watching the way he's eating this bagel. I didn't even notice. I'm sorry. I don't even know why I picked up on it. But he's he's taking, <laughs> this un, he's taking an untoasted whole bagel, not like half, like a whole bagel and eating it like it's a glazed donut. Like there is no cream cheese to be found. Oh, there whoa. is no toppings to be found. He is taking a plain bagel and biting into the side of it uncut and just like eating a bagel like it's a glazed donut. And wow. I'm like, this man deserves to die <laughs> immediately. And he will. But like, who... <laughs> What the fuck is going on? That's giving boring. It's giving lackluster. And it reminds me, like, I miss the dad from Halloween 2018 who's fixing the sink and, like, making all the funny jokes. You loved him. I did love him. Like, this man tried to have personality and it just didn't live. Like, I didn't feel a thing when this man dies. But in 2018, Mm. I was sad that that dad died. Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like the bagel really ruined things for you. It really did. (laughs) It really did. So anyway, Lori leaves. It seems like she has a loving relationship with her parents. Very sweet. She leaves to walk to school and she runs into the kid she babysits, Tommy, who lightly harasses her. I meant to ask you this. So the dad tells Lori to drop this envelope off at this house, but I did not catch the context as to why she's delivering this piece of mail to the Myers house. Like, I did not understand the purpose of her playing with that mail slot like that. Like, what did he say to her? Because I missed it. I missed it as well. Either way, Lori's dad had said, hey, can you drop this off on your way to school? But like to the Myers house that has been sitting abandoned, supposedly since Deborah died. Mm -hmm. But like, why are you delivering mail to a vacant house? I didn't catch it. There must be a reason. I don't remember. We also never see like what's in the envelope. Okay, so we looked it up, and what did you find? According to fandom, or <laughs> fandom.com, the father asks Lori to drop off an envelope that says the now vacant Myers house is being sold. We take that as a notice, like, this is not your property anymore? Yes. So maybe it's been vacant for so long, nobody knows who really owns it at this point anymore, it's been so many years, so it's just a notice that the property will be sold, repossessed, something along those lines. Regardless, prior to her dropping this notice off, we see Michael arriving back to his family home, ripping up the floorboards and retrieving his OG mask. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're assuming that before the cops took him away, he hid the mask and a knife under the floorboards of his bedroom, maybe, and he retrieves them and we see Michael watching Lori drop this notice off from within the house. This was scary. Yeah. I mean, Michael is aware of Lori, but Lori is not aware of Michael. Exactly. Lori meets up with Annie, aka Danielle Harris. I actually have some during the plot trivia about this scene. Mm. So Annie, Linda, and Lori are sitting in the library and they're talking about that night. And this is kind of a replica of the conversation of the original where Annie is supposed to be babysitting Lindsay Wallace that night, but wants to be able to drop Lindsay off at Tommy Doyle's house because that's who Lori is babysitting that night because she wants to go fuck her boyfriend, Paul, which, okay, like that's part of the original, no problem. And I did like that this scene kind of painted Lori as a more realistic teenager because we see her being like edgy with her parents and like pissing them off and shit like that. 
But Lori here is being like, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't like lying. So this to me feels like a more three-dimensional character where it's like at her core, you know, she's a good kid, but she's just saying edgy shit and being like a stupid teenager because her friends are doing the same thing or whatever like that. Whereas I feel as though the character of Lori Strode in the original, she is like this borderline (laughs) nun-like, straight-laced, covering every inch of skin. Lori is good. But in this, in like the 2007's world, that would not have worked without turning her into like a Carry remake type of kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just meant to be an outsider, but she's involved. She has friends, but like at her core, she really doesn't want to get in trouble and she's a good kid. So I did like the characterization here. She feels like an actual teenager. But Lori spots Michael standing across the street outside. And again, this is a remake of the original classroom scene where Lori looks out and sees Michael standing across the street. But some during the plot trivia, the film was mostly shot in South Pasadena, California, the same area where John Carpenter's original film was filmed. When Lori notices Michael watching her and the girls at the library, Michael is actually standing in front of Lori's house from the original film. Also, Lori's house is located on the same street that Jamie Lee Curtis, Nancy Keys, and PJ Souls walk down in the original film when Michael Myers drives past them in the station wagon. So I did really like the nods here and how intentional that was. Like, he is standing in front of the OG house. That is awesome. This is where we're also starting to get the parallel plot with Loomis, who is now directing people to Haddonfield. He's trying to get people's attention about Michael Myers. He's going to Haddonfield. He's going to do something. Of course, he's being met with the same skepticism that he was met with in the original movie. But at this point, we see him chatting with a graveyard overseer about Michael when they come across a gravestone that is missing from a cemetery. And Loomis says, I bet I know which one it is, which is indicating, again, if we are familiar with the original movie, that Judith Myers's headstone is now missing from a graveyard. So then nighttime comes, it is Halloween night, and we are focusing on Linda. She meets up with her boyfriend, Bob, at Michael's abandoned house. That's a little different. I remember us talking about this, I think, in the original, where it's like when you're a teenager and you feel like there's like not a place to bone and you're like, I'll do it anywhere. You know what I mean? Like you you just find these corners, but it's like, I would not want to bone in the Myers house. But I love that Linda's characterization is the same, where like Linda's on top, commanding, Bob ruins it with a leg cramp, finishes too early, and is like, (laughs) just get me another fucking beer. And I'm like, yes. Like, I love that she's the same character that we grew to love in the original. Oh, this is where the stairs come in. Oh, maybe. Because Bob goes to get the beer. Of course, they have a cooler that they bring with them. I love that they're prepared. And as he's coming back up the stairs, this is when Michael attacks him, kills him, and stabs him to the wall of the staircase. It is very jump scary, though, because he comes out of fucking nowhere and gets this guy. I thought we would have more time. But I also like this because this is when he had the ghost costume. So Bob was the one in this version that mastermind the ghost costume and was going to show Linda to try to make Mm -hmm. her laugh. Michael Myers took it, which I kind of liked because Michael Myers doesn't have a funny bone in his body. Well, he does that in the original too. Really? I thought Michael Myers just put the sheet on himself. I don't remember Bob coming up with that idea. Because I don't think in the original we see Bob do it first. No. Okay, okay. So I see what you're saying. Never mind. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, that makes sense. Michael wouldn't have come up with something so silly in his own because he sucks. Understood. Understood. But who knows? Anyway, Michael appears in his ghost costume, which is very parallel to the original movie. We get that scene with Linda being like, just give me my beer. See anything you like with the flashing. Yes. (laughs) But then, of course, Michael Myers attacks her and strangles her. 
I wrote, I love that Linda's first reaction while getting strangled is to preserve the beer before it becomes too much. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, because there's no phone cord in this one, because that is what Mm. happens in the original, right? And that's why Lori thinks that she's just having sex. She does call Lori, and we do see her call Lori, but Lori is not on the phone while she dies this time. So we see Michael grab her by the throat, but in that first initial jolt, she's still holding onto her beer and steadies it. Like, I don't (laughs) want to spill my fucking beer, but then it comes to be like, this is not a kinky thing. She's being strangled and she's killed. Meanwhile, Loomis buys a gun. Okay, great. Later, we are back at the Strode home. Laurie has a nice chat with her parents on the porch before Annie picks her up to go to their respective babysitting gigs. And as they pull away, mom goes inside, but dad is still sitting on the porch just enjoying the crisp fall evening when Michael approaches and kills him. Comes out of fucking nowhere. Nowhere. Drags him inside and shuts the door. Dad is dead, so he immediately advances on mom. He somehow gets her. I don't know if he hits her, but then we get a scene really similar to Judith's murder where we see her still alive and crawling towards the phone to try to contact somebody. But then right when it seems like she might be within reach of help, Michael grabs her, throws her into the coffee table, and then breaks her neck. Poor D. What the fuck? We also see Michael looking at a picture of Lori and Dee noticing it and says, leave my baby alone. Right. And it's just sad because we know what's coming. And she seems to know more about why he would be doing that, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. So Tommy and Lori talk about the boogeyman. Okay, we get it back to the original. (laughs) And he calls Lori to pawn Lindsay off on her while her and Paul go fuck. I loved how Lindsay was watching this movie and then Michael is just standing behind the couch watching the movie with her. I thought that was very funny. Like, I loved that personally. While Annie's, like, making this popcorn, Michael's just tilting his head and also watching this movie and leaving this kid alone. I thought that was very funny. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis is trying to convince the sheriff to be more vigilant where the sheriff is unconvinced. Dr. Loomis isn't helping with saying, like, evil's here and lurking among us. Like, he sounds (laughs) fucking crazy. Like... But we see that Michael is stalking after Annie and Lindsay as they walk to Tommy Doyle's house. So Michael is very much on the scene. So now Laurie is officially watching both kids. Annie is back at the house she's quote unquote babysitting in, even though the quote baby she's babysitting is at a different house. Paul arrives and they are hooking up when they are attacked by Michael. He kills Paul right away in front of Annie via stabbing. I don't know, he throws Paul off of her first, but I don't know exactly how Paul dies. Okay, but he's dead. And Annie, of course, freaks out. She tries to escape, but she is prevented. And then he drags her out of view. Again, it's like that dragging, Mm -hmm. that pursuing. And Daniel Harris is fucking acting. Like, I believe her and she's like topless. It seems very mean-spirited. Yes, but we don't see what happens to her. No, we just assume the worst. Yes. But Sheriff is talking to Dr. Loomis again in another scene and reveals that Lori Strode is boo. Lori Strode was adopted by the Strodes after Deborah Myers' suicide. So this is what's confirming that Michael and Lori are related. And that's what Michael's primary motivation is. So then we see Lori walking Lindsay back to her own house and they enter to find Paul hung by a rope by the upstairs banister with a jack-o'-lantern on his head. And Annie is topless and bloodied, but alive. So Lori goes to try to call for help, but Michael comes out from behind the door and goes after Lori as Annie tries to warn her. Lori is able to escape into the backyard, and I wrote, at least this Michael can speed walk, because it seems like he's actually standing a chance kind of like yeah. going up against her. <laughs> but Lori makes it back to the Doyle house. She's finally let in when Tommy opens the door, but Michael breaks through the door with mm. much ease. 
she takes the kids and goes upstairs to hide in the bathroom just as the cops arrive. So she did make a call that made it to the house. Yes. But I was confused as to why they arrived at the Doyle house if she called from the Wallace house. I don't know. Unless she gave them the address of the Doyle house. They might have. I don't know. Unless, did the sheriff make the call? I think maybe the sheriff made the call when he was in the car with Loomis. Because as Annie's dad, he knew where Lori was going to be. Oh, that's fair. So I think Lori made the call that connected back to the house where Annie was at. Mm -hmm. But I think the sheriff is the one that made the call to check in on where Lori was supposed to be. Yeah, because also in that interim, they arrive at the Strode house and find her parents dead. Right. So anyway, police officers arrive at the house where Lori is babysitting. And I wrote the way they don't even clear the space. They just go right upstairs and start knocking on the door and trying to get Lori to come out. Obviously, we know Michael is still in the house. We know how this goes. And the officer almost gets Lori to come out when he is all of a sudden killed on the opposite side of this like translucent glass in a really eerie kill. After he's dead, Michael breaks through the glass and kidnaps Lori. Michael leaves the kids behind and just takes Lori. Mm-hmm. This is when the sheriff and Loomis finally arrive to Annie. She is still alive. The paramedics also arrive. So it seems like they're going to get her help in time to help her survive. But meanwhile, Laurie wakes up in Michael's old home next to Linda's dead body and in front of Judith's stolen headstone. It looks like she's in the basement, like a dusty, dusty basement. Yeah, a dusty, dusty basement, an unfinished basement. And Michael is there and he tries to show Lori the picture that his mother had given him years earlier of a young Michael holding her as a baby. And this is what I mean. Like Michael kneels down next to her to show her this picture. In this version, I don't know that Michael wants to kill off his family line. Mm. He killed Ronnie because he was an abusive piece of shit. Mm -hmm. And I think he killed the boyfriend because he didn't like his sister being sexualized. And he killed Junie Cortez because he was a piece of shit. But like that's who he killed. But he also killed his sister. No, you're right. I think we were seeing her characterized as being just like a stereotypical big sister. Like she didn't take him trick-or-treating. Right. Maybe he saw that as a huge offense. And I don't know if he still sees Lori in the space of innocence where it's like she didn't have the ability to like sin yet or she didn't Mm. have the ability to like mess up yet. But like he's being tender with her and Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like it's the motivation that is made canon by Halloween 2, the original Halloween 2, where they're related and he just wants to kill off his family line. Like he wants to connect with her. He wants to say like, hi, like I'm your brother. And he even takes his mask off. We don't see his face, but we see Lori see his face. Mm -hmm. So it's like, do you remember me? Like I'm your brother. And she's like, I don't know who you are. I want to help you, but I just don't know how. But she uses this moment of vulnerability to grab the knife, gets him in the fucking neck, and tries to escape. She ends up kicking out a boarded door and makes her way up a fence as Michael breaks through the wall after her. She runs outside but isn't looking where she's going and falls into an empty fucking pool. And Michael catches up to her. Michael is descending the pool as Lori screams for help. And we finally get Dr. Loomis on the scene. He's trying to stop him verbally, but then ends up shooting him three times and he goes down. And I'm like, four shots and one neck stab? Goddamn, Michael. Because a cop gets a shot out on him in yeah. the original house. So he is now stabbed in the neck and shot four times. <laughs> and this boy's like, Mm-mm, I got more in me. Well, we don't know that yet because True. Loomis goes, gets Lori, brings her out and puts her in his car. You know, it seems like the end is near. Lori is now safe. But then Michael appears and crashes through the glass on Lori's side and drags her out of the broken window and starts to head back towards the house. Loomis tries to get Michael to stop to regain Lori, but Michael grabs him by the head and pushes his thumbs into Loomis's eyes. I don't know. Does Loomis die? I think Loomis dies. It looks like he's unwell. This scene I hated 
Lori's like hiding in a wall and then she's in the ceiling and oh, he's yeah. like breaking the ceiling out. This is why I wrote this movie does not need to be two fucking hours, my mm-hmm. God, because there's just like an extended chase scene, but eventually Lori and Michael face off again. Lori has Dr. Loomis's gun in her possession now, and as she tries to get a shot off on him, he like fucking tackles her off a balcony, which again is showing like how he was shot off the balcony in the original, another mm-hmm. callback. Lori and Michael struggle again on the ground, and it looks like she might get a headshot off on him, but she screams over an image of baby Michael playing with baby Boo, and that's the end of the movie. She does end up shooting. She does shoot him, but we don't know if it's a headshot. True. She's like covered in blood, so we assume it's a headshot, but there's a second movie, so... Right, and we know Michael, he's not going down. So yeah, that's the movie. So in terms of post-plot, I feel like we've talked a lot about Halloween (laughs) the past two years. So I didn't really find a lot that was talking about Halloween 2007 specifically. Obviously, this movie is a lot more like sexually charged. There's a lot more nudity. There's things that we could talk about there. But I just put some basic things that we could go over. So in this one, Lori is obviously different. She's less shy, she's less prudish, but she's still responsible and more of a real teenager. So if we're looking at Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode and Scout Taylor Compton's Laurie Strode, I feel as though this Laurie Strode was edited for its time. So I did appreciate the realisticness, even if looking back at it now, it was horrifically 2007, it was perfect for that time. I also, I forget where I read this, so this is not my original thought, but this movie has an emphasis on class division. So in the beginning, we see Lori and her friends are all pretty well-to-do, like they live in these suburban houses, they seem to have good clothes, all those types of things, where in the beginning, we see that there's a stark contrast between the way that Michael was raised versus the way that Lori ends up being raised. They seem to be low income. Ronnie is not working. They seem to be wearing older clothes. You know, Deborah needs to work a lot to support a single income household. And Michael is at the bottom of the food chain at school, I guess, for those reasons and is chastised for those reasons. Whereas the Laurie Strode that we saw in the 1978 was more well-to-do, was more upper middle class. And then we see Laurie or Boo kind of ascend into that class when she's adopted. So I found that that characterization, you know, while not prescriptive, that's not to say that like poor people are going to turn into murderers or anything like that. But Michael had a lot of circumstances that fed into the trauma that he endured that might have informed who he was or who he turned out to be. And that kind of leads me into, was this background on Michael Myers helpful or hurtful? Because in the original, it's presumed that he's just sex averse, which is why he kills his sister and why he goes after Annie and Linda, where this one gives some context as to perhaps why. Like his mother is a sex worker. Judith is characterized as being somebody who's promiscuous in her high school. And does that lead him to have this resentment toward women or sexuality? And Lori Strode, as far as we know, like there's like the Ben Tramer situation, but she's not the one who's like pawning kids off on other people to like have sex. Like she seems to be the most prudish of her friend group still. And is that what like preserved her in terms of like him trying to have this tender moment before he turns on her? You know what I mean? Yeah, but we don't really, we don't see him see her with her friends very often. I mean, he's watching her in the library. I mean, I don't know that he would have all of this context. I agree with you, but she's not having sex in a way that he can witness like he does with the other two. True. But he also goes after them first deliberately. Like, do you think that he just has found them first thinking he might find Lori, but then sees them having sex and then decides to kill them? I don't know. But you're right. It does feel like in the original movie, he is motivated by sex, not Mm -hmm. his own, but punishing those who have it. So in this one, you're right. I think the origin story makes that a little bit more unclear. 
Honestly, Ronnie, I think, is a big question mark as far as what Michael really is motivated by. And the bully as well. Like, the bully is a dick. And not saying, you know, that young kids deserve to be murdered by other kids. Like, that's not it. But to say, like, in Michael's mind, we could see as a young kid who might have a troubled past that he's making some sort of logical connection that isn't quite right. And this isn't like when I'm talking about Deborah and Judith and their sexuality, like that's not meant to be prescriptive. It's looking at the original and knowing that that kind of set the theme or that set the trope of sexually active teens get killed. Halloween 1978 was a roadmap for the final girl. It was a roadmap for like the virgin surviving toward the end. And although Carpenter didn't necessarily do that intentionally, knowing that this movie is like coming from the same roots, that's what I'm wondering, essentially. I'm not trying to be prescriptive and say that like because Deborah and Judith and Annie and Linda were sexually active that they deserve to get got. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like how much of this is zombie replicating the themes of the first one and how much of it is what is Michael's motivation as a killer? You know what I mean? But I was thinking about your question as far as does helping fill in his background benefit the movie? I don't know if it does. I think it raises some questions. It also, I feel like pigeonholes him a little bit. Like I could see people being frustrated with like seeing Michael have this kind of background and being like, okay, well, what are you trying to say? Is it unfair to paint this image of Michael and suggest that because of that background, he became this killer? But I also think showing him a little bit more in the hospital is interesting too. I think it helps show maybe that this character specifically is beyond treatment. Like he is always going to be this cold-blooded killer. But I thought that that came across really clearly in the first movie because we didn't have that background, but I feel like I knew even more that he was a cold-blooded killer and that he was never going to take sympathy on anybody. And I understand how that kind of just takes away from the mystique of Michael. And I think it's just like, you know, he doesn't have to have a reason. Right. You know, we get backstory on Freddy. We get backstory on Jason. And Jason, again, is another character that's shown in that light. Like, he was drowned because people weren't watching him. And he was bullied because he had a disability. There's a lot of vengeance being taken on. And in the original, like, we don't see Michael as anything but this shape. He's almost supernatural in that way. Whereas this almost humanizing him to a fault where it makes him less effective. So I can see the points where people are like, I didn't need that. We don't need to humanize him. He's just the shape. Like he is just a thing that kills. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. And especially because as a villain, like that is one of his claim to fames. That is how he functions in the lore or at least the lore previous to this. Look, Michael has never been my favorite. No. So I don't find his backstories okay. Did I feel like it added a lot? No. But do I gravitate towards the Halloween franchise anyway? No. So it's hard for me to really, I don't want to say care, but also care. Like I see Rob Zombie tried some different things. I thought there were some clever callbacks to the original movie, which was fun. Like little Easter egg moments. I appreciated looking for those myself. But Michael, he's just not my guy. No. I don't want to know more about him. He's just not my favorite. But I think we can move forward from Halloween on Halloween now because we covered at least (laughs) the three iterations of the original, right? Like we, Mm -hmm. at this point, we're just committing to the bit. (laughs) So we've completed the bit. I don't want to cover Halloween kills or ends because they were dog shit. And I don't necessarily find the need to go into the many, many Halloween sequels in terms of like two, four, five, six. I mean, maybe one day. Maybe Because there's still things to watch there. Did you know that Busta Rhymes and Tyra Banks are in a Halloween sequel? What? Yep, exactly. So like there are times where we could be like- (laughs) We could have a good time. We could have a good time, right? (laughs) I'm I'm not doing against it, but um, doing Halloween on Halloween is how we started. And three years later, I just thought it was the most appropriate way to complete this little trifecta that we did. So let us know what you think we should do on Halloween next year. Yes, yes. 
If you want to get in touch with us, as always, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or feel free to follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.